Today, Tuesday, June 15th, marks the end of the first day of the meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. Surprisingly, the Southern Baptist Convention really only exists for two days out of the year during their annual meeting where they convene together in what's really an extended business meeting. The rest of the year, the Southern Baptist Convention is continued on through the entity heads and through the executive committee that makes the day-to-day decisions about the operations of the Southern Baptist Convention. So this annual meeting is really, really important. As many of you know, our church, Resurrection Church, is in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention, and we try to distinguish between being a Southern Baptist church and being a church that's in partnership or cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention because our relationship to them is more doctrinal and cooperative than it is tribal. However, that doesn't mean that the annual meeting is of no importance to us. We really do try to keep our involvement in the Southern Baptist Convention tied to the local level, so we get heavily involved in our in our state convention, but we really haven't done much in terms of the annual convention. Though, as we think about our church's relationship to the Southern Baptist Convention, if we continue to pursue, pursue closer partnership and cooperation with them, uh, we're going to have to send messengers to this convention because it's an important meeting. Well, to talk about this first day of the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, I have called in to my good friend, Mitchell Hawley, who is a member of a Southern Baptist church in Louisville, Kentucky, or Louisville, or however it's pronounced in that neck of the woods, who has um, had some experience in the Southern Baptist world outside of his own church experience as he's pursued two master's degrees from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and has served as an intern to the Dr. R. Albert Moeller, Jr. So, Mitch, thanks for being willing to talk with me as I review and recap day one of the annual meeting. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here. That was, uh, that was a great introduction. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Mitch, I I have called into you or called you into this conversation for a couple of reasons. One is because you and I have not had a chance to talk in a while. And um, yeah, it's been a while. number two, because I think it's important for our church, Resurrection Church, to at least get some information about what's happened in the Southern Baptist Convention on this first day of the annual meeting. Um, but there's nothing, I think, more boring than one guy talking into a microphone for 45 minutes talking about something that probably is already sort of outside of the realm of interest, um, but still yeah. relatively important. And I think you have something to offer in terms of continuing the conversation, reconnecting, and then perhaps some special insights as someone who's been part of the SBC world and had an insight into uh, that world from a unique perspective. Well, and uh, I think you're right to kind of hone in on this kind of boring nature of, of what's happening. Because on one, on one hand, it's like a really exciting two, three days um, because all of the business for the convention for the year is essentially handled and hand, and then handled and voted on and then handed off to committees and things like that that are going to make the day-to-day decisions. So in one sense, it's really important what happens and for the denomination um, for these two, you know, these two, three days. But on another side of that, it's actually quite, it's just a bureaucratic machine 
filled with a lot of voting and a lot of Robert rules of order and a lot of, um, you know, bringing motions before the floor and, you know, hearing people, you know, have random motions being thrown in there at times. Um, and so, you know, especially as a new church coming into the denomination, the SBC, um, it can be kind of a, uh, why is this important? It feels a little boring. And the reality is that sometimes it is a little bit boring. Although um, when you really kind of dig into it, there's some important um, maybe decisions uh, sort of denominationally that are made. And so it's worth it's worth just kind of being aware of. Yeah, and I I think that's a good point about church life or political life or or whatever, is that the boring stuff is not necessarily inconsequential. And so you need to pay attention to these things. And our church, historically, has been a Southern Baptist church for over 50 years. However, the majority of people in our church are not 50 years old. And in fact, most of the people who are members at Resurrection Church are um, members of a Southern Baptist church for the very first time. So in some ways, it is like our membership is part of the Southern Baptist Convention for the first time. So maybe we can just talk a little bit about what is the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'll just preface it by saying in our membership seminar, I tried to distinguish between the Southern Baptist Convention as a denomination and the Baptist denomination. And I like to talk about the SBC as really a group with kind of under the umbrella of the Baptist denomination even though they're often referred to in the media and in common conversation as their own denomination. But I think we need to recognize that to be Baptist is not to be SBC, but to be SBC is to be Baptist. Yeah, yeah. You could almost think of it probably as there's an umbrella that's called Baptist, and underneath that umbrella there's a number of groups. Like Mm -hmm. you have the General Baptists, you have the Southern Baptists, I'm sure there's a few more in there. Each one of these denominations that are kind of, they share some commonality because they're all Baptist in some way. And so, you know, they're going to believe similar things about the church and the nature of the church and how it should be run. They're going to probably agree about, um, you know, sort of uh, core features of where the church is going, what the the good is and how we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet each denomination, like the General Baptist or the, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, you know, they might they might not hold at, like certain other theological positions as closely as maybe the other group does. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's when we talk about that broad umbrella, uh, you can fit underneath that umbrella of being a Baptist and not be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, is, is a good way, probably a good way of saying it. Yeah, and I, I think one of the challenges with identifying what it means to be a Southern Baptist is that within churches that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, there are different ideas of what what is the core essence of being a Southern Baptist. And the way that I understand it is there's probably a spectrum on, on the one end where there's this understanding that to be Southern Baptist is to be doctrinally Southern Baptist which is to say we we hold to the Baptist statement, the Southern Baptist statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message 2000, and doctrinally, if you hold to that, plus one other thing, which is cooperation with other churches, which is to say we give toward the cooperative program to to fund missions and other things, disaster relief and the like. And if you have those two things together, you are a Southern 
Baptist. But on the other end of the spectrum is the tribal end of the spectrum. And to be a Southern Baptist means that you hold to whatever the historical feeling, probably of that particular congregation, of whatever that tribe is, plus the cooperation. And and maybe that tribalism is defined only by the cooperation, and there's no sense of church culture or doctrine that that contributes to it. It's only cooperation. And and I I look at that and think that's one of the most challenging parts of being in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention is that there are over 50,000 churches, or nearly 50,000 churches, and each one of them understands what it means to be a Southern Baptist in different ways. Yeah, and there's also this sort of, you know, it's a Southern Baptist Convention, so it has a lot of roots and a lot of churches in the South. And so, um, and I'm from the South originally, and so I, I like Southern culture to a certain extent. Um, but there's a sort of like, um, <laughs> it, it, it's easier to kind of, uh, it's sort of on the tribal end of that, you know, there are a fair bit of churches who've historically been in the domination for since the beginning, right? And they have kind of embraced sort of not only this sort of doctrinal commitment, this sort of theological commitment, um, but this sort of cultural commitment. Like mm-hmm. they, they believe that the, the, the convention should be this sort of cultural body, not this sort of uh, theological body or this sort of you know, mission agency body, but this sort of, uh, but a, they have a clear idea of what, what a biblically informed kind of culture would be. Um, and so that's where there's, you know, being a Southern Baptist, there's a mixed bag. I mean, there's such a variety of, of, of churches that, that exist in there. Um, and there's probably more healthy and less healthy ways of engaging with the Southern Baptist Convention yeah. um, and being a part of it. Now, I, I think we're going to get into this a little bit later, but I, I wonder if this identity crisis is a little bit of what undergirds the rest of the debates and issues that the Southern Baptist Convention is facing. And I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit later about critical race theory, but I I sort of wonder if churches that identify primarily in a tribal or cooperative way with the SBC and recognize that down in the very roots, the very foundation or beginning impulses of the SBC was written with racism, and there's a move to correct that. Well, there's there's a an erasing of part of that tribal piece while trying to maintain the cooperative piece. And and there's not as much maybe of a connection to the doctrinal piece. And then on the other side, you have individuals who are looking at it primarily doctrinal that leads to cooperation. And then um, as the tribal piece is erased, there's a question of what kind of tribe are we as Southern Baptists, which leads to the rejection of some who would hold to, you know, ideas or, or methodologies that would be different than theirs. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's um, sometimes, you know, when you go to these sort of meetings and you kind of get to know the the great variety of churches that are there, sometimes you, depending on who you talk to, you know, you could be really encouraged about a like-minded church that is, you know, concerned about the sort of local instantiation of the gospel in in their sort of community. And then you have churches that are, you know, maybe not as healthy don't don't have a sort of um uh, local focus on what on what they're doing but they're more concerned about these broader cultural issues and that's why this particular convention is actually a little bit at a, about a turning point right, right where there's a couple of issues where um the critical race theory is one but even just the president i mean who's gonna we're voting for president this year um because the president serves was one year or two years i, I 
I think this last year was two years because last the last meeting was canceled. So mm-hmm. typically you just serve for one year. Um, um, you know, and, and the idea of who would be president and the sort of ideas that come along with that president. And, um, you know, if, if people are going to favor one or the other, depending on what their sort of ideal sort of tribal identity is. Um, and so there is, I think, a, at the heart of this meeting, a sort of pull and tug about what does it mean to be a Southern Baptist and what does the Southern Baptist Convention stand for? Right. Yeah. So there is, there is, there is, there's a tug of war, I think, being played, especially this year, that's at, that is really at the heart of who, who do we want to be as a Southern Baptist Convention? Yeah. And that's a really tough question to answer when you have over 40,000 churches, nearly 50,000 churches. And um, when not all of those churches have representatives at this meeting. So maybe let's just talk about for a moment, who makes the decisions at these meetings, who sets the agenda, and who actually has the influence in these in these meetings? Yeah, so, um, you know, it might be helpful just to step back and just look at denominations as a whole. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, if you are, if, if you're, if you're a Baptist, you probably are, have hold a form, some form of congregational polity. And, and so what that means is that essentially the congregation or, or the people of the church are leading the church. They may be led and advised by elders, but at the end of the day, if you're congregational or if you're a Baptist, then it is the, uh, the congregation, the people that are kind of they have the lever of power in the, in the local church. Yeah. And well, in our church, so that's in the, in the Baptist world. Yeah. And our, our church is maybe a bit of a, a weird combination of those things with elder led congregationalism. But, but I right. think we're aware of maybe the traditional or stereotypical Baptist polity where like the pastors don't lead their churches, the, the members do. And, and obviously, right. you know, on one level, you could say that's a positive because everybody gets a voice. You know, that's a very uh, maybe modern sure. idea. But there's also the Democratic. negative in, in a church where the least spiritual individual has the most influence or at least the most say is the most spiritual. And so you can imagine projecting that onto a meeting of churches at, like this annual meeting where I think there were 16,000 registered messengers that, that is individuals who are sent yeah. by their church who have voting authority. Yeah. 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 And, and you might contrast that with maybe a sort of presbytery model of church governance where certain, certain elders, it's really just elder led. So it's ordained elders that kind of sit over maybe a bunch of local churches and they kind of make the decisions for those churches. Now there's going to be pros and cons to that sort of church government as well. But one of the advantages probably is a sort of, you know, conversations can be a little bit deeper, probably. You can probably really dive down on some issues because, you know, 15,000 people don't have to share their opinion, uh, mm-hmm. whether good or bad, <laughs> about what motion's going to happen. And at the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, one of the sort of notorious things about the Southern Baptist Convention is they're sort of open mic at certain times where just anybody who's a messenger or you know who's designated as a as a representative of their local um, their local you know congregation um, can have access to that mic. Yeah, I I think <laughs> a know? great so that can be hit or miss. Yeah, a great example of that is today's meeting, uh, where early in the meeting motions were being made, and one guy made a motion to extend times for discussion by ten minutes on certain things. And it ended up going to a ballot vote. And because the SBC yeah. is still using paper ba- ballots, 
that's that that was 15 or 16,000 paper ballots that had to be counted to determine whether or not to add 10 minutes on to some things. And it's like, oh, yeah. good night. We just spent way more time debating and then voting on this motion for 10 more minutes than the 10 minutes that we could have had. Yeah, I think that some, and this is, you know, this may be a hot take, and so I apologize, but I, I do feel like there are some pastors out there in the SBC who kind of treat the SBC as like, they like they, they really wanted to be involved in politics, maybe later, younger in life, and then that didn't work out, so they, you know, they in pastor thing ended up going, and this is like their one opportunity mm-hmm. to like be a politician, sure, <laughs> and to like, yeah, to like make make things happen, you know. And so you have guys like sitting there at the open mic with like Robert's Rules of Order, you know, trying to, you know, just talking to the chairman, hey, you know, point of order here, you know, we're not obeying the rules or whatever. Yeah, you know, and it, I know it, you're it can actually be up yeah. You're saying this either a little tongue in cheek or cynically. Either way, I I think that is an important point to make is that this is essentially a two-day business meeting that has a parliamentarian who is guiding the whole thing and making sure the rules are followed. And for this particular one, they have a second guy who I think is like the guy who makes sure the Republican National Convention follows all of the rules of order. And so, it you know, you might walk into this thinking, Southern Baptists are a bunch of small timer, like laid back, whatever. And in one way that might be true, but in this meeting, things are followed to the letter of Robert's rules. Yeah. Yeah. The revised rules, I think, uh, is the, uh, you don't want to be caught handling the old, the old rules. It's the revised rules. Yeah. And, and as a point of order, technically they're following (laughs) the convention's rules and where the convention's rules are not clear, they revert to the Robert's rules of orders. And in that (laughs) kind of annoying thing that I just did of, Hey, as a point of order, second that point of order. yeah, Yeah. That, that is like, as I watched on the live stream all day long, which I'm I'm doing so you don't have to, okay? Um, <laughs> there, that is a lot of the time is following, chasing down points of orders. Um, the president of the convention, who's moderating this meeting, um, consulting with the parliamentarian and others, and it it is yeah. not um, as exciting as you might think the two days of the existence of the Southern Baptist Convention might be. But as I already mentioned, um, boring does not mean inconsequential. So Mitch, what are the kinds of things that happen over these two days that are actually of consequence? Well, there's a lot of things that are of consequence. Um, you know, for example, I mean, on, on a probably the biggest level is, you know, the president is elected every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a significance. But then uh, there's a lot of resolutions that are passed and statements that are written um, that reflect theological commitments that the convention wants to shore up and highlight, um, you know, in the face of new challenges, right? So, um, uh, it was important to uh, when the transgender movement is getting going to have a clear theological definition about what is what does it mean to be a, a self and what is the self and how do we how can we conceive of the self biblically um, and then gender how can we conceive of gender in a biblical way um, so you know statements of that nature where um, the church is kind of confronting a, an issue that is maybe brought on by cultural forces or, you know, movements in 
political leanings. And so then the church, you know, needs to pro- provide a sort of theological statement about its belief mm-hmm. in order to relate to those ideas in a, in an informed way. And so some of these resolutions can be theologically significant for the church or uh, for the denomination, not the church more broadly in the universal sense, but mm-hmm. you know, at least for the Southern Baptist convention, how are they going to respond to some of these challenges? Um, and so it, it can be a, it, it can be a defining moment. Um, you know, you know, a great example is in 1995, um, I believe it was 1995, the convention met and they passed a, a sort of apology for the sort of sin of racism that mm-hmm. had, uh, permit permeated the Southern Baptist convention for many years, um, and had, um, had kind of just confessed that they had been a part of that as a denomination and repented of that and, and tried to explain how they would move then move forward. I need to go back and read that statement. It was written, obviously mm-hmm. I was younger, much younger and not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention when that was written, but that would be an example of a type of statement um, that would be relatively significant. Well, in on those resolutions, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I usually just explain them to people is essentially the virtue signaling of the Southern Baptist Convention, because throughout mm. the year, individuals, you know, from churches can send resolution suggestions to the resolutions committee, and then they yeah. kind of go through and reject a ton of them, but then rework mm. others, and then those are put before the assembly, you know, in this case, like 16,000 people. And then anyone can come up to the mic and suggest an um, an amendment to them. And then that amendment is voted on. And then the resolution is voted on. So in one way, resolutions are not a binding statement for churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. But on some level, they are a reflection of the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. And for that reason are important yet they lose some of their power or potency because they're, they're just a resolution. It doesn't actually necessarily do something. Yeah, no, that's a good clarifying point. It, it, it doesn't actually do something and it can't certainly kind of devolve into sort of this um, virtue signaling sort of kind of raising the flag. Um, I stand with this tribe mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think I hold these things to be valuable because the people around me do. Yeah. Um, it could certainly be that it, it ideally in a perfect world, you know, we would, and we would be principled people who, you know, when we passed resolutions, those would be principles reflect, reflecting how we live. Um, and then maybe even further defining areas of our life that maybe need definition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but yes, it can very easily devolve into that sort of, it's not being that. <laughs> and and maybe I'm more cynical than I need to be on this, but I, I've just assumed that the resolutions earlier, like pre-social media, were more important and significant because that was the voice of the SBC, where I think right now it's just popular to signal virtue or whatever is construed of as virtue in the moment by making a statement about something. So it is some, you know, I, I sort of get the yeah. sense that even things that should be said, perhaps that are said, you know, there was a resolution this year kind of decrying the Uyghur treatment in persecution. Well, I think that's good, maybe perhaps needs to be said. But I also wonder, you know, in, in our age yeah. where that's so common, if that's just a quick headline and in a list of however many other resolutions, 10 or 11, what yeah. what does that actually do? Maybe you have some insight for us. Well, that I th- 
you know, I think you're pointing to the sort of the corrosive nature of the social media world, um, where everything eventually becomes a banner, where you essentially are always trying to sell yourself mm-hmm. to so, some sort of some sort of community as acceptable or as like an, a, a figure who's of authority. So it feels like power grabs at time, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, a, I feel like that's just the corrosive nature of social media. They kind of reduce all sort of social interaction to that sort of uh, selling, selling yourself, identifying with the tribe sort of mm-hmm. um, sort of the principles when in reality um, it probably, because of the corrosive nature of that, we probably did have a stronger um, kind of um, process for resolutions uh, before social media and before the thing was probably broadcasted live for everybody to, to see. And my guess is that the nature of those resolutions um, and what sort of things were resolved about um, were, you know, probably were less, they had probably had more bite to it, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's just the world, the world we live in, you know, and I, and, and, and we, the only real way to fight that is not in a sort of large bureaucratic political system. Mm-hmm. The only way to really fight that sort of tribal salesmanship is to, is in the context of your local community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think it's important to know that on the one hand, if an if a resolution is passed during the annual meeting that our church wouldn't agree with, or you as an individual doesn't agree with, there are other individuals who don't agree with it and who vote against it. And so, on one yeah. level, a resolution is not in is not a statement that every person in every church in the SBC is making. But on the other hand, they are significant because at least a majority of the the messengers at the annual meeting are affirming this statement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Completely agree. Just it, you know. In other words, there's room in the convention for a healthy level of disagreement mm-hmm. about certain positions, right? Yep. Um, and that the nature of these resolutions aren't such that if you disagree with one, you're you like can't be in cooperation anymore. Yeah, exactly. And sometime if if you want to, I, I don't want to say waste your time, but maybe that's what it falls into, live stream the annual meeting and a lot of the back and forth that happens during this resolution period happens over just particular wording of things or um, just some, yeah. some random thing that is probably a waste of time. Um, but fits with sort of the bureaucracy and the operations of a large business meeting. But Mitch, I I want us to turn our attention to the events of today. So I think this has been maybe a helpful foray into the world of the Southern Baptist Convention and of the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. But there, there are several things that happened today that I think are worth talking about and that I want to let our church know about. Well, the church I am a part of. Um, Resurrection Church know about. And in the first is that today, the president for the Southern Baptist Convention was voted upon. And in this case, two votes were taken. Uh, There's a 
bylaw that says at least 50% needs to vote for a particular individual. And in the first round of voting, there were four candidates, and none of them received 50% of the vote. And um, I don't know that I can rem remember all of the candidates. One was an individual named Mike Stone, another named Ed Litton, another named Albert Moeller, and then the final guy, I Randy Adams or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Okay, okay. That's right. Randy I'm remembering Adams. it. Now, Mitchell, you have a connection to at least one of those individuals, and he he did not win the election. But maybe you no. can talk to us oh. really briefly about your connection to our Albert Moeller Jr. <laughs> well, it's a pretty loose connection. <laughs> I I would say, uh, I, well, we do go to the same church, so there's that. Uh, so we're we are covenanting members, I suppose, um, mm. of the local of a local Baptist church. Um, but then also, um, I was an intern in his office for about a year, um, and uh, there's yeah, <laughs> that was you know I was in seminary at the time, yep. and uh, I it was you know I had some time, and it was. Uh, it, Felt, felt like a good idea at the time. Um, and so I did it. And uh, usually an internship lasts about two years in the president's office. I just did it for one. So I'm probably not the best model of an intern. Uh, okay. I, I, I stopped halfway through. But Now, is that because you got kicked out of the internship or did you just move on to other things? Oh, no. I was finishing up the, the second master's and I okay. um, w was... A, an opportunity for a job came up at a school, and so I really wanted to teach. And, um, so I, I just, for the sake of job, I, I decided to leave. Okay. So can I ask you a couple questions about Dr. Mulder? Oh, please. Yeah. Uh, to, to, to the extent that I can answer them, I'm happy to. Yeah. And if you either are not permitted to answer or you don't know the answer, that's okay. <laughs> but um, yeah. I, I think that on... Um, one level there, there are some disagreements I have with Dr. Moeller on certain things, but sure. I do think it's impressive that he can read so many news articles every single day and talk about them. But I also imagine that he has interns involved in that process. Can you talk about his process for that daily podcast, the briefing a little bit? Yeah. And let me just preface by saying, Mike, I think I would have a lot of disagreements with Dr. Moeller, but I am deeply in, you know, I, I think that the, the, the domination um, owes a great debt to what he's done. Um, and I think that I have all the only I only have respect for for what he does on a regular basis. He's a very hard worker. Um, he also has a, a pretty big team um, uh, in place uh, yeah. to kind of support his mission and what he's doing. You know, he has the you know, he has a team in place to help him on the seminary side of things. But then he has a whole team in place that kind of helps him like with his podcast because <laughs> he does the briefing. I mean, he's been doing this thing for what, like 30 years, I think, you know, uh, he had a radio show before the podcast and, um, where he was, you know, the briefing. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he has a number of interns that are, you know, he always comes with a fair amount of, of research about what sort of news articles he'd like to talk about for the day. Um, but also one of your jobs as an intern is to, you know, you come in at the end of the day, right before he's about ready to record the briefing for the next day. And, and, and what do you, you know, mean by the end of the day in terms of the time of day? Oh, it can be anywhere between like four to like nine o'clock at night okay. <laughs> where, where your internship shift starts and uh, you are essentially, you're, you're, 
your main focus right when you get there is to kind of scour the news. What happened today? What sort of pieces are kind of in his wheelhouse that, mm-hmm. that would be helpful for him to discuss? Um, things that would be of interest to um, his audience. Um, and so then, and then you usually have a time where you bring your articles before um, his moliness. And um, and you present them as an offering to him <laughs> to see if they are pleasing to him, and uh, he will either take those and run with them, or he will he will you know cast us out into our, our, our outer darkness. Yeah. <laughs> now, were you ever tempted to um, call one of the fellow interns out into a field and strike him down when your article was rejected, or did were your articles always accepted? Uh, no, I, sir. I mean, you know, Dr. Miller is pretty matter of fact. I mean, he has, he's a very busy guy. And so when you bring your articles before him, it's a pretty quick, like you hand him the articles. Usually you, he wants them printed out so he can look at them quickly. And on occasion you'll hand them to him. You'll give him a little briefing about why it's significant. And then he'll just put it right in the trash <laughs> <laughs> That's great. and then take the articles from the next intern. <laughs> and uh, I, we understand why he would need to do that. I mean, he has a lot to do in a day and he can't, you know, he doesn't have time to like shoot the breeze yeah. about, uh, you know, something we found interesting for that day. So um, it's a bit of a learning process, I would say, to find, to find the sort of his sort of wheelhouse and uh, to be a good intern. I, I don't know that I was great at it, but well, um, Mitch, I think you and I, well, I know that we both grew up in a very conservative, independent, fundamental Baptist world. And in that world, we kind of looked at Dr. Moeller as like a a way out of that world or perhaps someone who was conservative but also normal. And as we've acclimated yeah. to the rest of life, we've realized this guy is actually really conservative, but he's a hard worker. He's done a lot for the denomination to lead them where they are. Is this guy a normal guy? And and I remember reading a Babylon Bee article, which for those of you who are unaware of this, I do not want you to be unaware in the way that the Apostle Paul didn't want the Corinthians to be unaware of spiritual gifts. This this is a right. sarcastic <laughs> kind of funny website, less so now because the guy sold it to whoever else. But um, there there was this photograph of Albert Moeller with like ten arms doing a bunch of different things and like dead robot eyes. Like he's not actually a human help. Give us something that would humanize Dr. Moeller for those who have maybe tracked his, his work for a long time. Well, let me, let me, I'll get, let, yeah, uh, let me answer your question, but then also just say uh, that one of the reasons why he can kind of be that machine and get a lot done is that he has such a huge, team of people mm-hmm. who are kind of making sure that he's successful. I mean, he has like three secretaries, I believe, yeah. in the presidential office. Which is encouraging <laughs> you know? for so, like normal church pastors like myself who often wonder like, how am I going to get a sermon written this week and spend time with people in the church and that kind of thing is we don't oh, yeah. have to, we don't yeah. have a huge staff and maybe we don't need to look at guys like that as the standard of what productivity looks like. Under no circumstances should he be a model of, standard, uh, of, of productivity because of the, the 30 people that stand behind and support what he's doing. So, that, so like, behind every does not have yeah, to. Be, behind every good man is a good woman, they say, but behind, behind every good seminary president are 30 young interns. 
Yeah, well, not just interns, but you know, like his director, his chief of staff, or his, the producer sure. for the podcast, or or whatever. But yeah, I get, yeah your point. Yeah. Your point is well taken and well made. Um, something that I think with humanize, you know, he's he's. I would say he's you know he's the type of guy who likes a uh, you know an ice cube in his in his hot coffee. Uh, mm. That's maybe you you've made fresh coffee for him <laughs> going into the briefing before you record. And, uh, you know, he's had a long day, so he wants to get that in immediately. So you got to put a little ice cube in there. Um, so as you can tell, being an intern is essentially a glorified housemate. Well, I'll just uh, say for any of our members, uh, any of the members at the Res Resurrection Church, if you ever want to make me a cup of coffee, feel free, but don't put an ice cube in it. I'll take it hot <laughs> and black. <laughs> Um, right. <laughs> but Mitch, why I getting off of your interaction with Dr. Mueller, why is the election of the president of the Southern Baptist Convention significant, particularly if that convention only legally exists two days out of the year? Well, in, in some ways, he is kind of a sort of leading voice. And so he's championing certain ideas. He's he's championing certain movements. Um um, you know, there are certain committees that are accountable to him. He's also appointing people on committees, you know, so he gets a fair amount of say in terms of um, what things are going to be focused on over the year and then who's going to be making those decisions mm-hmm. if he's not making them. Yeah. So this year was an election year. And I, I again, am fuzzy on this. It could be every two years, but I think it's every year. And, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, in this year, there were four candidates, and none of them got the sufficient amount of votes the first time around. And it was narrowed down to two guys, one guy named Mike Stone and the other guy named Ed Litton. And it was an extremely close race, you know, a difference of only about 500 votes from what I can remember. And um, Yeah, I think Ed, Ed Litton had 52% and, uh, of the vote, so only 2% more than the minimum. Yeah, and I th- I think this illustrates perhaps the importance of churches sending messengers to to vote on these matters. And this year, of course, there was an outstanding and, and probably historical number of messengers sent to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting. Uh, but who are Mike Stone and Ed Litton, and what does it mean that the Southern Baptist Convention was so evenly split, at least in terms of the messengers that were there, with just a slight leaning towards Ed Litton over against Mike Stone? Uh, well, what it means is probably open to interpretation. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, I probably have some cynical opinions about what that means. But I, maybe a good, a fair, maybe a more moderate reading of the situation, I think, is um, Ed Litton is a sort of, I guess you could call him the moderate candidate in the sense that he is, you know, well-liked, a very kind man, um, a guy who is, um, you know, kind of well-known for his... Um, sort of uh, compassion towards victims of sexual abuse um, and then also his kind of commitment to um, sort of social or, or um, r- racial reconciliation issues. I mean, he was put up, he was nominated by a guy named, a uh, pastor named uh, Fred Luter, uh, who was the first black Southern Baptist convention president. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, I think he had a little bit of a repetition of being basically. I think he had the good fortune of not being Albert Moeller and not being Roger or Michael Stone, and um, and and so I think he ended up. I think maybe that's a bit of a cynical read, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, most candidates were looking for 
or most messengers were kind of looking for something in between those two people. Yeah. Now, I think most people at the Resurrection Church do not know who Mike Stone is or what that name would mean. So maybe talk us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, where to begin? Uh, Mike Stone is um, the guy. So he is, I think he this last year he served on the executive committee. That's correct. And so that means he's kind of doing a lot of the day-to-day business. And I think a lot of people are going to know Mike Stone actually um, because of the uh, of the influence of a guy named uh, Dr. Russ Moore. So Dr. Russ Moore was the, for a long time the president of the sort of political act- active arm of the Southern Baptist Convention called the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and. Um, you know, Russ Moore just published these two letters recently, um, kind of suggesting that the executive committee and specifically Roger Stone kind Mike of slow balled Mike Stone. Sorry, yeah. Roger Stone. That's good. Uh, Mike Stone uh, kind of slow balled this um, this attempt by the ERLC um, and the Southern Baptist Convention to um, to kind of root out um, any sort of um, sexual abuse uh, that might have occurred and to keep that secret. Um, so I, I think a lot of people are going to, their opinions of Michael Stone are going to be kind of colored through that lens. And I think there's probably something to that. I think that Russ Moore has a reputation for being a very, um, a very thoughtful, um, a very uh, generous and, but very intelligent and smart uh, person um, and so when someone like that who loves the SBC and has been a part of it his entire life is kind of raising the flag and then mm-hmm. quitting uh, as the president of the RLC um, and kind of saying, hey, this guy basically slowballed our, our process of, of, of bringing justice to um, victims of sexual abuse, um, I think a lot of people are going to see Michael Stone through that lens. Um, but then there's another group that's that is kind of in support of Michael Stone, who maybe thinks that some of those letters that uh, Russ Moore that wrote that maybe they got leaked or maybe blown out of proportion. They're not really getting at the heart of what occurred, and so that's so you know he's kind of a part of that sort of what's it called the conservative Baptist network, mm-hmm. which is a group of churches inside the um, um, the SBC that is, has kind of defined themselves against critical race theory. And that's really their only core value. They're just a group of churches that exist to not like something. So that's always funny. Um, um, and so most, so he actually is like in sort of a very, very conservative, maybe even like highly tribal um, kind of wing of the Southern mm-hmm. Baptist convention. Mike, I think he, Mike Stone has a, has a bit more of a following. And so that's, I think that it represents a bit of a tug of war that's happening uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, over the election of, of, of a president. You know, are we going to be the type of president that is, are we going to be the type of convention that's going to elect someone where there's maybe question about his um, handling of, of <clears throat> really serious issues of justice? Um, you know, and different people might, you know, agree or disagree. But I think that that's a little bit where he's coming from. You probably have more to say about just kind of parsing it out for your congregation, but uh, maybe a bit of an introduction. Yeah, I 
I only have a few comments. The first would be that, as you mentioned, the conservative Baptist network connected to Mike Stone. I would just encourage members of our church to avoid that altogether. If you're interested in Southern Baptist life, I would just steer clear of the conservative Baptist network. Now, strongly in support of Mike Stone and the conservative Baptist network is a guy named Tom Askell and Founders Ministries. And I think there are certainly resources there that are helpful and probably profitable and godly. But on the whole, there seems to be a push in that same direction of creating an identity in opposition to one or two particular things. Um, but when we when we look at that those four candidates and ask, well, why did it come down to Mike Stone and Ed Litton, and how did Albert Moeller not receive the nomination? You know, how how did he not receive the vote? Um, I I only have one comment, and I and I think that probably um, one driving reason that individuals wouldn't vote for. Moeller, but would vote for Lytton, is that Lytton is a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention, and Moeller is the president of a convention entity. And so there's this sort sense that there's a perhaps a consolidation of power if Moeller becomes president, but also that the Southern Baptist Convention is made up of churches, not of entities or seminaries. And so it is always best for a pastor to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So I I don't I was not there, so I could not vote. But I I don't know that I would have vote, voted for Dr. Moeller, not because of um my lack of confidence in his ability to maintain stability in the Southern Baptist Convention or something like that, but primarily because he's not a pastor and he, he's not representative representative of churches. He's rep- representative of a seminary. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a, a fair take. Uh, I, I think maybe another issue that was not in his favor is I think there's a wing of the Southern Baptist Convention, maybe a sort of hyper-conservative um, and maybe in not a good way, not in the sense that they're conserving something, but a, like a tribal identity sort of sense of being a conservative, um, where the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Al Mohler in particular, are kind of feeding into sort of the contemporary liberal ideologies of the day. And so not only is there sort of this consolidation of power that is a potential with the president of a seminary becoming the president of the convention, but there's also this sort of, I think, um, this sort of fear from some that I think is completely unwarranted that the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is kind of liberal. It's a liberal institution. Um, and that's frankly crazy to me. Um, but I, I do I do know that that opinion's out there. And so when you have, I, I do think the vote was eventually split, right? Like if you didn't have Lytton, mm-hmm. I think Mueller gets most of those votes. Yeah frankly. Yeah. And, and I think one important thing to recognize is that this guy, Mike Stone and the conservative Baptist network are the people who are saying guys like Albert Moeller are not conservative where I look at Moeller and say, he's more conservative than I am. Like if that guy's not conservative, who is conservative? And um, so, so I think that's problematic and that's, that's why I suggest steer clear of the conservative Baptist network is this, this is what I would identify as like a hyper fundamentalist sort of outbreaking within the SBC that um, apparently is larger than I would have thought because of the number of votes that went to Mike Stone. But, um, 
this this election is important because that individual appoints people. He acts as a figurehead of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's speaking publicly in public places. That's the guy who the media calls when there's a question about the Southern Baptist Convention's opinion on a certain issue. Um, so so it's yeah. significant who wins. And um, in, in the final analysis, I'm grateful that Ed Litton won and Mike Stone did not win. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I don't know everything that happened in terms of, um, you know, Russ Moore's letters and his accusations against a guy like Michael Stone. Um, The accusations, the accusations essentially amounted to um, Stone sort of slow balling um, any sort of um, committee that would that would be able to take action um, uh, in the in the convention to kind of root out issues of, of justice specifically related to abuse victims. And if there's, if there's any truth to that, um, and I think I'm inclined to think that, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little bit hard to tell, but I mean, you know, I'm inclined to believe that we we dodged a bullet with, with not having Michael Stone as a president. I don't want to hide. I'm not trying to hide my opinion here. I'm very, very yeah. pleased that he did not win uh, because I think that not only is he kind of associated with the network of churches within the, you know, within the Southern Baptist Convention that are kind of highly tribal and highly conservative in a, in a, in a sort of negative way. But he's also, I think, um, I don't think he takes issues of justice seriously. Yeah. And, and I, I think um, I'm, I don't know, and I'm, uh, we're getting into insider baseball for, so for individuals who are not aware of this, (laughs) you know, pardon this, fast forward, I suppose, but I, I am not sure what to make of the supposed leaks of Moore's letters and, um, what, what ability he, or responsibility he had to maybe point some of these things out while he was still part of the Southern Baptist Convention instead of it coming out after he left. But I, I think even setting that aside and whatever influence that had on the vote, I, I think that the connection to the conservative Baptist network and in their mode of operating is one that would cause me not to vote for Mike Stone anyway. Um, and then this just raises other questions. Um, but, but I want to just return briefly and register one, uh, comment in terms of Dr. Moeller and his, his lack of receiving the presidency. And, and I, I wonder how much of that comes back to last year's Together for the Gospel Conference, where he had a, an Ask Anything, um, you know, briefing edition, where he essentially said, for the rest of my life, I am going to vote Republican Party line. And, and I think that sort of political... Uh, identity and leaning comes through very clearly during the the morning briefing, and um, and and I wonder if that was unhelpful and perhaps doesn't um, work with the reality that different people, as is the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention says, have a different political calculus. That is, they're doing the math on how to make political maneuvers differently. And I, I wonder how much that came into play as well. Yeah, it's probably hard to say, um, you know, officially, but... I don't know. I, I think that I would probably say that it didn't play a role just because, I mean, most of the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of polling tend to vote Republican anyway, <laughs> you know, so they tend to be pretty, pretty right, pretty red, I would say. 
Uh, and that's where J.D. Greer's message um, at the convention was kind of a uh, like a, a hit on the bullseye. Um, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about that later. But, um, you know, but essentially saying, you know, hey, you can be a Christian. We don't have to kind of engage in that sort of red-blue divide. You know, there's a sort of Christian principles supersede those sort of political commitments. Um, where, you know, honestly, that I imagine that something like that, a statement by like, by that, like that from Dr. Mo probably would go further to ingratiate him to the Southern Baptist Convention, just mm. given the, the the fact that most of them are polling red anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and I remain confused and conflicted about that. But I, I do want to talk about President and Pastor J.D. Greer's address to the convention today. And even along those lines, multiple times he suggested that he leans hard right in terms of his national politics. But I wonder, Mitch, yeah. if, if you had a chance to listen to uh, President Greer's speech and um, if you had any comments on it. Yeah, I listened to a, a bits and pieces of it and then read the transcript of, of what he said. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, he said some things that I think really were really important. You know, so one of the quotes was um, he was talking about pharisaical sort of uh, principles that can embody themselves in a church or an organization. And he mentioned that uh, one instantiation of that would be sort of unnecessary obstacles for victims of sexual abuse to seek justice. Mm -hmm. And so it was pretty clear that, that Greer was coming in on this sort of hot, this issue that um, I think a lot of people come to the convention and said, okay, this is an issue. How is the convention going to handle these things? Are we, um, and that's why even at the, in the first moments of the convention on Tuesday, today, um, um, the, uh, numerous resolutions were brought about, you know, trying to hire a third party, uh, like a motion to hire a third party to kind of come in and look at these things. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it was, it was clear that in his sermon, he was trying to highlight that to not do that, to create unnecessary sort of bureaucratic systems that would get in the way of that would be a sort of unbiblical sinful, uh, thing. And I think that that's well taken. Um, the other thing he said of note, I would say, is is um, is towards the end, sort of as you'd mentioned, that sort of political calculus that exists in the mind of a lot of a lot of Southern Baptist churches um, that pr kind of prioritize social issues over the gospel instead of. And so you take social issues and you put those above the gospel and don't allow the gospel to speak into social issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a there's a sort of hubris, I would say, um, that he's speaking against, where you're kind of approaching every every social issue as if you yourself are bringing the gospel to bear um, on that situation. When in reality, we probably need to ask ask critical questions, <laughs> critical questions, um, and and apply mm -hmm. a sort of um, a sort of humility as it relates to issues of uh, of politics and social justice and things like that. Yeah, and I, I don't know about your experience in your church life there, but I know even at our church, there are individuals who tend to vote down one Repu one party line, the Republican party line, and others down another, and uh, perhaps others third party lines. And so these are complicated questions, and we have to learn, as I think uh, J.D. Greer was commenting, we have to learn how to 
um, understand that there are different mathematical equations that we use when we approach these issues, uh, but that there has to be an underlying commitment to the Great Commission work, the gospel, and in these other realities that extend beyond the national politics that we're experiencing that often become too much of the church's identity. Um, he did, however, make this statement, and I want to break this down a little bit because I think you and I would both take a little bit of a different approach. And he, he said this, quote, whenever the church gets in bed with politics, the church gets pregnant and the offspring does not look like our father in heaven, end quote. And, and I think that on one level, we understand what he's saying in terms of when a church takes on a particular party as their identity, uh, the, the fruit of that is it looks like the party. It doesn't look like Jesus, right? But um, I think there's also maybe a bit of a misunderstanding. And um, one of my professors, it, a guy named Patrick Schreiner, has a forthcoming book book called Political Gospel or something like that coming out, where he emphasizes the reality that the church is a political entity. And so to say that the church should not be involved in politics uh, probably sounds one way that's right, but also maybe is not totally correct. So Mitch, I know you've thought a lot about this, particularly as you've delved into classical school education and the polis, uh, but but maybe help us understand a little bit how to hear what J.D. Greer meant but then also maybe a bit of a more nuanced um, understanding of the church and the political. Yeah. So um, man, where to begin here? I, maybe, I th- maybe it's just good to start the, at the very beginning. Um, and in the classical sense, you know, if we're going to go back to the Greeks and the Romans and you're, they would ask the Greeks and the Romans, what is politics? Um, they didn't have Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you were to ask them, what is politics? Well, they would probably say a number of different things, but in general, it would sound something like this. Politics is the science um, of organizing a community towards a goal, an idea of, and that goal being the idea of some idea of the good, the good that the community should be going. So any sort of the science, uh, whether that's the science in terms of creating laws that would govern the community or creating how, how what sort of structures would constitute the the uh, the community, those are all political questions and they mm-hmm. have political significance. Um, and so it's the science, the logic, the art, really the skill of organizing a community towards human flourishing towards some version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, based upon that classical definition, a church is a political body in the sense that it is a community of people engaged in, with an idea about what human flourishing looks like, and they have a, the church actually has a clear idea of how the community, the, the polis, the, the political body of the church, is going to move there, how it's going to organize internally, what sort of laws they're going to have, what sort of leadership they're going to have, what sort of governance they're going to do, and then how they're going to – what sort of debts and obligations they have to one another. Um, you know, When you think about what a citizen is, a citizen who exists in a political entity, we, we primarily think about citizenship in terms of, of rights – and obligations, mm-hmm. um, you know. So, as a citizen of a Christian polis or Christian community, I have an obligation to my fellow Christians to support them, to uh, hold them accountable, to meet with them regularly, and they have an obligation to me. Mm-hmm. That is a political relationship. 
And so the, if we look at the church that way in sort of that classical sense, um, then the church has a clear idea about that's biblically informed about what it, what human flourishing would constitute. And we are trying to move that direction. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That means that the church is a sort of, it, it, it engages in politics in a way that supersedes sort of our current ways of manifesting, um, you know, governance. So Republican Democrat. And I think at the heart of what Greer is saying, that's what he's saying. He's saying that there's a, there's, there's principles about what constitutes a Christian community, a Christian political organization called the church mm-hmm. that should be more important than whether or not you are a Republican or a Democrat um, and what, who you vote for. Um, and, and so that you are first a citizen of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, and then you may be a citizen of, you know, Minneapolis or, or Louisville or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to talk about it in terms of the church as an alternative community. But in this reality of the already not yet, where the city of God and the city of man overlap. And so you are a citizen of the kingdom first and foremost, but you're also operating in this era in which the the city of man still exists and the state has a role. And so you're always going to have some, you know, other kind of political realities that you're operating in that extend beyond this alternative community. Um, but but from the very beginning, the Christian church was not originating in a society where religion and politics are separate. Religion and politics go together, and to be a Christian was to be a, of the party of Christ and, and to have a king and to have a ruler and to have a community. And so to, to suggest that the church is not political is really misunderstanding the very nature of the church. However, I, I understand what Greer is saying is he's, he's trying to say, the church is not either Democrat or Republican, uh, but he yeah. he just in this unnuanced way because it's a meeting of sixteen thousand people um, can't right. can't get into this reality that the church is political in the end. Yeah, and uh, you know, so much more could be said about this, but you know, I, I'm also not a fan of the sort of you know the t- a typical like if you're a politician, and you're a Catholic, if you're a Catholic. You know, like, let's say you're Joe Biden, for example. It would be pretty typical for Joe Biden to say something like, or, you know, sort of a Catholic who's a politician to say something like, while I believe religiously or in terms of my own religion that abortion is wrong, I'm not going to make that a law or I'm not going to promote any sort of law that says that abortion is wrong because I want to let people have their own say about that. That might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard because if you – (laughs) precisely because of this reason there's not really a separation between this it's a very modern modern sort of add addition this idea of separation Mm -hmm. of of church and state right where the church has no right to talk in to speak into um how the state is run and it what i just would like to say is if if we as a christian community have a sort of dogmatic view about what things are good and true and beautiful that has some bearing. It has a lot of bearing on what we vote for and what sort of communities we try to establish with our laws. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of like, I'm at, you know, I, I, I may think abortion's wrong, but I'm not going to vote for legislation that's going to like limit that. I, I don't see how that is a, that is a, that, that appropriately realizes 
the the directedness of a political community mm-hmm. of Christians. Yeah, exactly. And and I think there are issues like that that were addressed today in the annual meeting, uh, abortion and others. And two of those issues that were addressed were critical race theory and, and the other issue of sexual abuse. But Mitch, we are over an hour into our conversation, and there is still another day of activity within the Southern Baptist Convention that I think we need to discuss together. And so I hope that you and I can do a part two in in the next day or so as we try to recap some of these issues, but then also talk about the other events that unfold within the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. But I thank you, Mitch, for taking the time to talk with us. And we look forward to hearing more from you and to talking more about it, what it means to be a church in partnership with the Southern Baptist Convention. It was so great to talk to you. And uh, I hope that whatever conversation we had here would be helpful to, to you and to your church. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking again. If you have any questions about the items that we talked about relating to the Southern Baptist Convention or to our relationship as a church to the Southern Baptist Convention, you can talk to me at any time or shoot me an email at aaron at clbcmn.org. To learn more about our church, you can visit us online at www.resurrectionmn.org.